Good morning. How many are in the Christmas spirit already? Oh, Brother Ernest. Brother Ernest Miss Carolyn. Thank you all. And me, apparently. The rest of you are ready for it to be over already, huh? It ain't even got started yet. I know this past week we finally, as a family, there's something as a pastor I've always wanted us to do, and that's watch a Charlie Brown Christmas together. I mean, that's something that I feel like is very special for a family to do, and you're not really in Christmas season until you watch a Charlie Brown Christmas special. Y'all even know what I'm talking about. Is that something that y'all watch? Well, I was watching it this past weekend. Uh, there's, you know, that, that part where Charlie Brown, he goes and he opens the mailbox and he says, oh, why am I even opening the mailbox? Nobody sent me a Christmas card. Nobody likes me. He, he, he says, you know, why do we have holidays just to point out that no one likes me? I know that the rest of the year. And, and as I was watching that, I laughed. I laughed hysterically, as a matter of fact. You can laugh at me for laughing at a show I've watched 10 times to 30 times to how many ever times. And I still think it's funny. Like, it's not outdated yet. I don't even know when it was made. Maybe it's as old as I am. But I still think it's hilarious and something that you should watch every year. The same thing is true when it comes to the, the Christmas story. You see, I, I think sometimes we think that new is better and we should be trendy all the time and always looking for something new. Uh, and we get afraid to talk about the Christmas story year after year after year, I, re- I remember when I first began pastoring, I, a friend of mine had, he, he said, you know, I, what I do is I, you know, I preach a series leading up to Christmas about the incarnation, about Jesus being born. And I was like, that's a great idea. And then I started thinking about it, and I was like, wait. So that's like four years worth of Christmas sermons if I do it four weeks in a row, right? I mean, what am I going to talk about next year? That's before I realized <laughs> Y'all don't remember what I talked about last week, so we're good, right? I mean, I can, uh, I'm, I'm totally kidding. I know some of y'all write it down every week and cheat. But, but, uh, but when we come to the Christmas season, we come to the Christmas story, it is worth talking about over and over and over again. And the reason why is our world, our culture wants to feed us a false story. It wants to feed us something that is not true. And so it's important for us to continually come back to what Christmas is all about, why Christmas is important, why we celebrate this time of year every year. And the fact is, is that God has become flesh on our behalf. He has come and He dwelt among men to save us from our sins. And and so this morning, we're going to keep walking through the Christmas story, and we're going to do it out of Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 18. I'm going to read verse 18, and then we'll come back, and we're going to actually look down through verse 25 together this morning. So Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your word. thank you for your power, your love, and your grace. God, I pray that all these things would be evident in this place today. God, I pray that you... I would be exalted, and God, that we would truly hear from you. God, help me not to get in your way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Why, the first question I have for you is, why did Jesus even need to be born to begin with? And, And the answer is, very simply, to do what no one else could do. Jesus had to be born to do what no one else could do. First off, he had to be born to rule 
unlike anybody else can rule. He had to be born in order to rule rightly. You see, before verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1, there's 17 verses that I bet about 90% of you have never read. It's a genealogy. I know when you're reading your Bible reading plan every year, you skip the genealogies, right? The begets. Well, the reason why they're in there is to teach us something. Well, verses 1 through 17, and I'm not going to go back and read every single verse in, in verses 1 through 17 this morning, but what we see in the genealogy is Matthew is trying to teach us something. God is trying to teach us something through the names that he includes in this genealogy of Jesus. Matthew says that the, the birth of Jesus, or the, the genesis of Jesus took place in this way. The, the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's saying God has made a promise to his people and he's going to fulfill it through Jesus Christ. If you go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, to Genesis, I'm not going to go all the way back there and come all the way back this morning. Well, sort of I am, I guess. But in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, God has put Adam and Eve in a garden, in a paradise. And he said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. What does Adam and Eve do? They eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. He says, if you eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, you will surely die. Satan's like, no, you won't. God's holding out on you. They're like, we're going to go with Satan because it sounds better. They do, and guess what happens? God, as a result of this, the, the entire earth is cursed because Adam and Eve sinned against God, and they do surely die. Man is separated from God by our sins. And man passes on sin generation after generation after generation. God says, even in Genesis 3, though, I'm not going to leave you like this. I'm going to send you a Savior, and He's going to destroy Satan, and He's going to destroy His work. And so we hear this, but we don't see the Savior. You come to Genesis 12, and you see this man named Abraham. Remember, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Abraham is a man who is amazing. He's a man who loves the Lord, who God says, leave everything you've ever known and go to a land that you don't know, and I'll tell you when you get there. You've got to love that, right? I'll tell you when you get there. And Abraham is so faithful, in fact, that when you want to talk about faith, we was actually talking about that this week, uh, if you want to talk about faith, who do you talk about? Well, you talk about Abraham. He's the example of faith in the New Testament. And so God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. Sounds really good, doesn't it? I mean, if there's a Savior to come, maybe it's Abraham. Guess what? Abraham fails. He fails miserably, and so do his children. And his children's children's children. Abraham, the guy who leaves everything to follow the Lord, fails. So we think, well, maybe it's not Abraham. Maybe it's one of his sons. Well, I mean, Israel goes along for a while, and eventually they get to the place where they say, you know what? We need a king. We're tired of being a bunch of loosely affiliated tribes. We want a king. And so God says, I will give you a king. He tells Samuel, the man who they say, who the prophet is, is who they're talking to, and they say, he says, Samuel, don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as being king over them. Up to this point, Israel had had one king, God. Now they say, we want an earthly king. We want a man. So he gives them Saul. Saul fails miserably. But thankfully, there's a man after God's own heart, a man named David. Remember, Jesus is the son of David. And God tells David, he says, you're, you're a man after my own heart. He says, I'm going to give you a son, and this son I'm going to give you is going to reign forever. He's going to sit on the, his, on the throne, and he's going to reign forever. He's going to be perfect. Sounds amazing. So if there's going to be a Savior, if there's going to be a Savior, maybe it's David. Well, David, as we know, fails miserably. In fact, if you read Matthew's genealogy, he says that David has a son named Solomon by Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Who's Uriah? Uriah is the man who David killed to steal his wife. 
This great king of Israel, the greatest king they'd ever known, murders a man and steals his wife. Not necessarily in that order. So if it's not David, maybe it truly is his son, a man named Solomon. Solomon's a great king. In fact, God says, Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want. Whatever you want. Nothing's off the table. What do you want, Solomon? Solomon says, give me wisdom so I can be a good king. God says, since you asked for wisdom and not riches, I'm going to give you everything else plus wisdom, and you're going to be the wisest man to ever walk the planet. Surely this is going to be the ruler, right? Surely this is the king we've been waiting on. Surely he's going to fix all the problems. No one's wiser than Solomon. Solomon decides that he likes women even more than David does, and he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. He has 1,000 women, and even those don't satisfy his heart. He leads Israel into a deeper and darker path. Solomon's son Rehoboam never actually even sits on the throne of Israel. He splits the kingdom before he ever gets on the throne because of his ego. Then you have king after king after king who fail to lead well, who try. And there's some, there's some bright spots on the map. You have a king named Josiah who's an awesome king but is unable to turn the people around until finally the people are led away into exile, away from God, far from God, scattered to the four corners of the earth. And here we are. When you come to Matthew 1, 18, this is the next chapter. Up to this point, every leader in Israel has failed. Some of them have failed worse than others, but they have all failed. They are all people. They are all men. At the end of the day, these men are flawed. They are not perfect. They are not good rulers because they are selfish. They, are, they, they seek after their own desires, and they are not they're not all powerful. And so no matter what you think this morning that will fix our culture, that will fix our world, I'm, I'm going to tell you that there is no man who can do it. There is no woman who can do it. It doesn't matter who our next president is. It doesn't matter who the next world leader is, period. None of them can fix it. The problem is, is that no man can ever sit on the throne. No man can ever be this true king. And so that's why Jesus came, because he came to rule rightly, because only he can do it. Only he can be the one true king. Only he can truly lead us the way that we should be led. And so when we come to Matthew 1, 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It's the answer to all of God's promises that one day I'm going to send you a savior. One day I'm going to send you a king. One day you'll finally have a real king. All of this is tied up in this. The son of Abraham, the son of David, finally the savior has come. And so it says here that now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And so here we see that Joseph and Mary's weddings plan, wedding plans get sidetracked. You can imagine being Joseph. He's engaged or he's betrothed to Mary. In those days, an engagement lasted a year and then a betrothal lasted another year. I don't know how they did it. Crystal and I were mar are married within a year of meeting each other. Like I can't imagine a year-long engagement and another year-long betrothal. That would have been terrible. But, but Joseph is looking forward to marrying Mary. He's like, man, I finally, you know, we're going to get married. It's going to be amazing. You can imagine all the dreams, all the hopes, where they're going to go on their honeymoon, all these different things. But before they come together, before they finally uh, tie the knot, so to speak, he finds out that she's pregnant. 
and it's not his baby. He knows it's not his baby. Can you imagine the betrayal he must have felt? Can you imagine the pain he must have felt? There's only one conclusion logically that he can come to, which is that Mary stepped out on him, that Mary has done something she should have not have done. She has been unfaithful to him. So what can Joseph do? Well, he can publicly humiliate her, right? He can put her on blast on Facebook or wherever and say, you know, this is what she did. She's a terrible person. She comes from a terrible family. <coughs> Can't believe she did this. Or he can divorce her quietly and just call it off before it ever gets started. Matthew says here that Joseph being a just man, not wanting to make a public spectacle of her, not wanting to publicly humiliate her, decides to put her away quietly, decides to divorce her quietly. Now, you've got to understand a betrothal was the same as marriage in their eyes. It's not quite marriage, but it's just as binding. And so and the only way to get rid of a betrothal was actual divorce. And so Joseph says, I'm going to do this quietly. I'm not going to do it out loud. Why? Well, because Joseph's a compassionate man. Not only is he a just man, he's a compassionate man. He isn't interested in demanding his rights to justice. He's interested in protecting Mary in spite of what she, in his mind, has done to him. Joseph reminds us this morning, guys, to be compassionate. Did you know you can be right and still be kind? Did you know you can have rights and choose not to demand them? Joseph could have stood up and demanded that he be publicly apologized to. He could have stood up and demanded that the full way of the law come on this young lady. He could have stood up and said, I have been mistreated. I have been done wrong. You and your whole family should be punished because of what has taken place. He could have done it. He could have demanded justice. He could have done, you know, public relations control. But instead he says, no, I don't want to cause her any further harm. I don't want to cause her any pain. I'm going to do whatever I can to show her kindness. I wonder if that's our attitude or if when we've been wronged, we demand to be publicly apologized to. We demand, this is my right. I demand it. I demand justice and I demand for everybody to know it so that my ego can be restored. Joseph could have done that. He could have said, I deserve this and he would have been right to say so. But just because something is right and just because something is just doesn't mean we always should. What's your response to the people that have wronged you? Do you get that smirk when something bad happens to them? Finally, they get theirs. Finally, they get what was coming to them. Do you secretly hope for them to be destroyed? Do you do everything you can to talk about them when they're not around? Or do you show them love and compassion? Because Christ has come, we've been set free, guys. We don't have to hold it against people when they do us wrong. We can actually forgive them. They don't actually have to pay us anything. Why? Because Jesus already paid their bill. Jesus already paid for their sins. They don't owe us anything. Just because something's fair doesn't mean we should demand it. <clears throat> but as we read on here, look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You ever make an assumption that was completely wrong? Can you imagine how dumb Joseph would have looked if he would have walked around smearing Mary? Then the next day the angel shows up and is like, Hey, you know that girl you've been smearing? 
Yeah, the baby uh, is actually from the Holy Spirit. While he was considering these things, he didn't jump out there and begin to act. He didn't jump out there and begin to run her down. He first considered these things. Do you do that? Or do you make assumptions and run off with your first idea of what, what has happened and begin to talk about people? Can you imagine how foolish Joseph must have, would have looked had he done that? How thankful he was that he didn't do that. Can you imagine that retraction? Sorry, guys. Thought it was another guy. Turns out it was God. Like, can you imagine Joseph's retraction at that point? But, but, but Joseph, instead of running out and making terrible situation uh, for himself and for Mary, he waits and he speaks to God. Maybe before you start talking about folks, you should wait and speak to God. Before you judge the people around you, before you make assumptions, maybe you should hear God out, listen to their story. And so the angel shows up and he gives, Mary, or gives Joseph instructions. Don't fear to take Mary as your wife. Why would Joseph be afraid to take Mary as his wife? Well, first off, apparently she's unfaithful. And if she's unfaithful now, imagine after we get married. Secondly, can you imagine the fears he must have had of what everybody would think about him? Either he did something wrong or she did something wrong. Either way, they're both humiliated for the entire community to see. This is not going to go well. Either way, things are going to go bad for Joseph. Either way, all the dreams, all the things that he had in his mind of what marriage was going to look like with Mary is over. He will not have what he thought he was going to have because she was with child before they ever come together. But the angel says, don't fear. Why not fear? Well, the child is actually from God, from the Holy Spirit. And to be honest, that... I don't understand exactly how this works. I don't understand how the Holy Spirit gave Mary a, a baby. I don't understand how the, the eternal God of the universe takes on human flesh and is born. I don't understand that. And no one else does either. I don't care how many degrees they got. I don't care how big a words they use. They don't get it either. Because He's God. He's infinite. We're not. But we know that this is what happens. And so... So God says to Joseph, don't be afraid. Know that the baby is actually from God. It's actually the Holy Spirit has given Mary this child. He says, don't be afraid. Why? Well, and when he, because she's going to have a son, you're going to call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. The second thing that Jesus does that no one else can do is save us from our sins. Remember I mentioned Adam and Eve. They sinned in the garden, and ever since Adam and Eve, every person has been sinful. We come out sinful. We come out broken. We come out unable to serve the Lord. There's this unbroken chain of sin going all the way back to the garden, except for Jesus. He is perfect. He doesn't have the sin nature that we have. We have all sinned and come short of God's glory. We have all broken His law. We've all messed up. We've all fallen short. We've all missed the mark. Not one of us is righteous. Not one of us is good. Ever. No matter how hard we try, we can never pay God back for what we have done. We can never pay Him back for all the sins we've committed. You say, I can try. I'm better than my neighbor. Yeah, you may be. Guys, when we try, when we try to earn our way back into God's graces, we're sort of like two people standing at the Statue of Liberty on the island and saying, I'll race you to England, like the other country, England, across the ocean, England, right? Let's go. One of you may make it further than the other, but you're both going to drown. We cannot make our way back to God. If we could, 
Jesus would not have come. Paul said that if it were possible for us to be righteous before God, to be right before God by our works, God wouldn't have sent Jesus. Jesus comes to do what we could never do, to be perfect, to live a sinless life in our place and to die the death that we should have died. And so Jesus comes to rule rightly. He comes to save us from our sins and He also comes to bring us back to God. We see this in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has come to visit His people. God has taken on flesh. God has entered our world. He has broken down all the barriers between us and Him. He has taken on flesh. He has come uh, to be what no man could ever be, as it said a second ago, perfect in every way. He lives a life perfect, unlike what you and I could ever do. And then at the end of that life, He pays the price that we owe His life. He gives His life, His sacrifice in our place so that we can spend eternity with God. And so he brings us back to himself. He brings us back to God by becoming a man. He does what no one else could ever do. Bring us to God and give us an actual relationship with him. Guys, the reason why we talk about the Christmas story every year, and the reason why we'll talk about it again next year, is because it's the most important story in the universe. I know, I know, listen, I get it. Family is amazing, and I love family. Christmas is not ultimately about family. It's about the fact that no matter how good a man ever sits on any throne, he's not going to be good enough to rule. We need Jesus. We need a real king. As much as I love Christmas decorations and I love lights, that's not the point of Christmas. The point of Christmas is that Jesus came to die for us since he came to be the light of the world to shine in our darkness. As much as I love to eat and love to get gifts and give gifts and all those things, that is not Christmas. That is not the point. The point is, is that God gave us the ultimate gift, a relationship with Himself. And, and, and so if you're, if you're here and you're like, I, I don't feel like I'm in the Christmas spirit, I, I get that. But what you need to understand is that the story of Christmas, the, the purpose of Christmas, at least for me, and it should be for you as well, is a reminder that God has done, Jesus has done what you can never do to pay for your sins, to give, yourself, give you a relationship with Him and to lead well. And so how do we respond to this? Look at verses 24 and 25. <coughs> Christmas reminds us to live obediently, sacrificially, uh, and repentantly. And so verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. That's a big deal. We'll come back to that. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph did what God told him to do. That's a big shocker, right? You're like, well, no. The angel showed up and told him what to do, and he did it. Do you think about, have you thought about what it cost Joseph to do what God told him to do? This was not a small thing. Notice when the angel says the baby inside Mary is from the Holy Spirit, he doesn't say, I don't believe that. Notice when God says to Joseph, you are going to give up your dreams for your life and for your family and everything you had planned, you're going to give it all up and raise uh, this child as your own so that he can save the world. Joseph is not like, well, you know, I don't really have time for that. I really have other plans. 
Isn't that sort of our response typically, though? I mean, God has given us His Word. He's commanded us to live in a way that pleases Him and serves Him and shows Him as the point of our life. But when He calls us to serve Him, when He calls us to service, when He calls us to love each other, even as He has loved us, what is our typical response? I've got other plans. I want to tell you this morning, Christmas reminds us that God doesn't care about your plans. He cares about His plans, and you need to get in line with His plans. God breaks into Joseph's life and says, I know you had a plan, I've got a better one. And he says the same thing to you. You may have dreams, you may have hopes, and all those things, and those are great, nothing wrong with them. But ask God what He wants you to do with your time. Next time you say, well, I don't have time. What do you mean when you, don't have t- when you say you don't have time? Do you mean I don't have time because I have other things I'd rather do than serve you? Christmas reminds us that we are to serve obediently and sacrificially. You're like, well, it's not fair. I, don't want to, I shouldn't have to give up what I want to do what God tells me to do. Tell that to Joseph. Tell that to Mary. Tell that to Jesus. Tell that to anybody who ever walked with Jesus. Christmas reminds us we are to live obediently and sacrificially. Jesus doesn't say, follow me when you feel like it. He says, take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me or don't do it at all. There's no middle ground. Either you're going to give Him your everything or you're not. We need to get past this place of playing like we're believers and playing like we're following Jesus and doing whatever we want. That's not Christianity. We have to get to the place where we understand that He demands our all, and we're good with that. We have to get back to this place where this crazy world we live in is at first priority. Ask yourselves, are you truly obedient? I I tell you, Joseph, his response to the Lord has, has really rocked my world. Ask yourself this morning, what in your life says you're obedient to the Lord? What in your life says you're sacrificing for Him? What's the difference between your life and the person down the street that doesn't believe in Jesus? What is present in your life that's not present in theirs? Not what's not present, because we hide behind morality, and I get that, well, I don't do this, this, and this, and they do it. Okay, but what are you actually doing? Jesus says, my command is to love each other as I have loved you. What are you doing to show Christ's love? That's what he's concerned with. The other comes because you love him. I get that. But first and foremost, the way that we see Christ at work in our life is what we're actually doing, not what we don't do. How are you obedient? How are you sacrificial? What's He calling you to? And you're like, ah, I don't have time. i got too much other stuff i got to get done. Not stuff for you, Lord. It's stuff for me. But understand, I don't have time. Oh, really? Didn't I give you the breath that you're breathing? Didn't I give you that time? Well, yeah, but you don't understand. It's not fair. Now, At this point, at least for me, I had to come back to the last phrase. And he called his name Jesus. Why did Joseph name Jesus Jesus? Well, the angel told him to. Why did he tell him to? Because he will save his people from their sins. Before we leave broken, before we leave defeated, before we leave feeling like, well, I'm not even a Christian. I've messed up. I've I didn't stop and help that lady change her flat. I didn't stop and share the gospel with that person this past week. I didn't pray near enough. God must not love me anymore. Why did Jesus come? Because we can't do it. Why did Jesus come? To save his people from their sins. He came to forgive those who, instead of spending their time on other people, are selfish. And he offers us forgiveness. 
He came to save and to forgive those who instead of serving Him, serve ourselves. He came to offer us a new heart. He came to save those who talk meanly about, about other people and, and, and gossip and offer to us freedom from our tongue. He came to save greedy people who care only for themselves and give them a new heart that cares for Him. Guys, He came to save those who are addicted. He came to save those who are self-righteous. He came to save those who are judgmental. He came to save His people from their sins, no matter what those sins may be. So if you're here this morning and you're like, I'm a sinner, guess what? You're a good candidate to be a part of Christ's people. You're a good candidate to receive His salvation and His forgiveness and to celebrate Christmas. Because who did He come to save? He came to save sinners. Are you a sinner? Well, then you can be saved. You can receive relationship with Him. He came to do what you can't do, which is to make yourself right with Him. He came to make you right with God, and He offers that freely. He says, if you'll come and you'll put your faith in Me, I offer you a new heart. I offer you a, a, a perfect righteousness. Not something that you earn, but something that He gives. And He gives freely. And so I ask you this morning, if you've never trusted in Him, you've never put your faith in Him, would you do that? Would you say, Lord, I, I need you to save me? I'm, not, I'm done trying to earn it. I'm done trying to make myself better. I can't do it. Would you say to him this morning, Lord, I need you to save me from my sins. I need you to take over the reins and rule in my life. I need you to give me a new relationship with you. You know, if you'll say that, he gives it to you freely. And this morning, if, if you are a believer and you've been walking with him, ask yourself, Lord Jesus, are you really my king? Am I really acting like you're my king? Am I truly obeying you? Am I truly worshiping you? Or am I just sort of playing the part? If you would, stand with us. And as you stand, we're going to pray. Uh, after I pray, we're going to have a time of singing. We're going to have a time of, uh, of prayer and response to the Lord. And this time, guys, uh, it's a time for you to come down and, and pray at the front. It's time for you to come pray with me. But more than anything, it's a time for you to pray. I really, truly believe that until we turn ourselves back over to the Lord and in prayer and in dependent prayer on Him, nothing will change. So ask yourself this morning, what is He calling you to pray for? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank You. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. God, I thank You for the gift of the Gospel and the gift of Your grace. God, I pray that You would speak it powerfully into our lives this morning. God, that You would change us. God, that you would make us new. God, that you would restore us to where you would have us to be. Show us all the places we fail. And God, help us to change, truly change. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you come as we sing? Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart. Say that you're my.
of the Lord. Is, I was glad when they said, let us go into the house, right? But uh, don't forget that tonight at 5 o'clock we have Bible study. Before that, we have a couple of meetings, finance committee, building grounds at 4, nominating committee at 4.30. All right? Or did I get backwards? Nominating's at 4? 4.30. Nominating's 4.30, building grounds at 4, and finance at 4.00. 